bad news story is what happened after Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And you saw the world reacted basically in two ways. One was, we have to get rid of these weapons. These are horrific weapons that should never be used. And the other reaction was, we have to get some of these. And those two strands have basically fought each other for 75 years. Are the countries who pledge never to get it still not getting it? And are there any problems we have to deal with? And how about those countries that have them? How are their good faith negotiations going? And this is going to be a problem because there are no negotiations. Nobody is talking about nuclear weapons. It was very much a frustration with the nuclear powers for failing in their important commitment to reduce and ultimately eliminate nuclear weapons. And the fact that they were no longer moving in that direction as they had been earlier. I think the main thrust of it is to make it not acceptable to have nuclear weapons. You know, the abolition of nuclear weapons as a treaty, not if you have them, reduce them, please, but you shouldn't have them because no country should have them. You're listening to a special series of the Finding Humanity podcast with the Elders, a group of leaders brought together by Nelson Mandela in 2007. I'm your host, Hazami Burmada, and I am proud to be joined by my co-host, Mary Robinson. Mary is former president of Ireland, former UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, and chair of the Elders. Together, we will unpack critical social and political issues and learn from the experiences of former presidents and prime ministers, UN officials, Nobel Peace laureates, freedom fighters, and human rights champions. Throughout the Cold War, nuclear confrontation was a threat that overshadowed everyone's lives and was reflected in popular culture and debate. From Oscar-winning film Dr. Strangelove to mass peace demonstrations. Today, we are confronted with the dangerous prospect of a new nuclear arms race, yet it is barely spoken about. The weapons are still there, but where is the debate? On today's show, we'll discuss the state of nuclear threat around the world. We'll talk about the key arguments for the possession of nuclear weapons, which countries want them, which ones currently have them, and the implications of their use. What is a realistic agenda to curb the nuclear threat we're facing? And what is our best hope for ultimately achieving a world free of nuclear weapons? To answer these questions, we are joined by a friend of the elders, Joe Cirincioni. Mr. Cirincioni is a leading global nuclear expert who has worked on national security and nuclear policy in Washington, D.C. for nearly 40 years. He previously served as the president of Plowshares Fund, a public grant-making foundation that supports initiatives to prevent the spread and use of nuclear weapons. In the beginning of his career, Mr. Cirincioni worked on the Committee of Armed Services and on the Government Operations Committee in the U.S. House of Representatives. And that's where I learned how you build a bomb and how the bomb spreads and what the justifications were for nuclear weapons and the nuclear posture of the United States. Here, Mr. Cirincioni breaks down two types of nuclear weapons and how powerful they are. 
There's the original bomb, the atomic bomb, the ones we use in Nagasaki and Hiroshima. And these are fission devices. These use either uranium or plutonium, the only two materials used in the core of these bombs. And it sets up a rapid chain reaction that splits the atom, splits the nucleus of the atom. It doesn't take much, tens of kilograms of uranium, single digits of kilograms of plutonium to produce a bomb that is greater than 10,000 conventional weapons, 20,000 conventional weapons that would require hundreds of bombers. Mr. Cirincioni says that nuclear weapons changed military strategy, military thinking, and the fate of humankind. Soon after we developed the atomic bomb, we realized we could go bigger. And in the 1950s, we developed the fusion bomb or thermonuclear bomb, hydrogen bomb. And this takes the atomic bomb and uses it to generate the heat and pressure and radiation that duplicate the conditions inside the sun. We are now able, this is a remarkable technological feat, able to duplicate the primary energy source of the universe, fusion. And this is where you put that bomb next to a small supply of hydrogen fuel and you're able to fuse the hydrogen nuclei. You bring them together and that releases even more energy. And so these weapons are now 10, 30, 100 times more powerful than the atomic bombs and they're typically measured in megatons. So a one megaton hydrogen bomb, the kind that we have, the Russians have, the British, the French have, these can destroy 500 square miles of a city or about 1,300 square kilometers killing everybody in that city. So again, you can see the vast destructive potential, which is why, of course, they're called weapons of mass destruction. This is a very reassuring and hopeful moment in the relations among nations. We have come here today to the East Room of the White House to sign a treaty which limits the spread of nuclear weapons. In 1970, the Treaty on the Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons or the NPT, became effective. The NPT is an agreement which aims to prevent the spread of nuclear weapons and promote disarmament. I would say that the NPT, as we call it, is the most successful security pact in human history. It is nearly universal. Almost every country is a member of it. I think we have uh, Israel, India, Pakistan, North Korea still outside of it. All four of those have nuclear weapons, but everyone else is inside the treaty, and it's really worked. I mean, it didn't work right away, but it's steadily grown in importance, and it provides the international legal and diplomatic framework for stopping the proliferation of nuclear weapons in both axes, both stopping it from spreading to other countries and stops the existing nuclear arsenals from growing. And the NPT is based on two promises. One, all those countries that have nuclear weapons will work to reduce them, and all the countries that don't have them will refrain from getting them, and the two are linked. You know, the two are linked. They're two sides of the same coin. You cannot convince countries to give up nuclear weapons if the countries with nuclear weapons keep growing their stockpiles. And the second promise of the treaty is actually maybe reaching the end of its usefulness, and it's about assuring the access to the peaceful uses of nuclear technology to every country. Large-scale protest movements first emerged in the 1950s and 1960s in response to the increasing public alarm about the threat of nuclear war. 
A second wave of public activism against nuclear weapons later developed in the 1980s as tensions between the United States and Soviet Union reached renewed heights. It triggered memories of when I was growing up. When I was growing up, this was a protest issue. We protested against nuclear weapons. And it was also a women's protest issue. Women were being arrested for trying to break down barbed wire fences and get in and stop and camping out. It's interesting, you know, it was much, much more a conscious issue um, in my pre-student, student and post-student days than it is now. Isn't that itself quite shocking? Mm. And the original protest movements had an effect. I mean, they were started by the scientists. The very people who built the weapons were the first ones to form organizations like the Federation of Atomic Scientists, etc., and try to had petitions to restrict the flow of this. It didn't work. Once the Soviets got the bomb in 1949, and then the British in 52, and then France in 1960, and China in 64, we were off on an arms race, and we built up steadily. But then it crested, and actually it crested thanks to protest, thanks to pressure in the 1980s. A million people, the largest protest movement in U.S. history in 1982, a million people in Central Park until the Women's March of 2017. That was the largest protest ever. And this had an effect on governments and governments reacted. When the Cold War ended in 1991, there was a leap forward in the elimination of nuclear weapons. George H.W. Bush was one of the greatest arms control presidents of all times. He unilaterally removed 14,000 nuclear weapons from the arsenal, and then Gorbachev matched them in unilateral actions. And you saw the arsenals dramatically decrease. That took care of a lot of the problems, and it really did stem the proliferation surge. In fact, there have been no nations since the end of the Cold War that have started nuclear weapons programs. None. And there's only three, North Korea, Pakistan, and Iran, that began nuclear programs after the signing of the NPT. Today, there are nine nuclear-armed states. The United States, United Kingdom, Russia, France, India, Pakistan, Israel, and North Korea. It's important to note that India, Israel, and Pakistan never signed the NPT and therefore made no commitments not to develop nuclear arsenals. Meanwhile, Iran, while a signatory to the NPT, secretly pursued nuclear activity in violation of the treaty's terms. The same goes for North Korea, which continues its nuclear pursuits in spite of having joined the NPT. Despite big reductions since the end of the Cold War, around 13,000 nuclear warheads are still in existence. These have a combined destructive capability of close to 100,000 Hiroshima or Nagasaki-sized bombs. Over 90% of these are in the hands of the United States and Russia. Worryingly, a large portion of the total, nearly 4,000, remain operationally deployed. Who regulates which countries we're collectively okay with having nuclear weapons? And is this agreed upon internationally? Is it based on size of countries? Is it based on who's in the leadership of countries? How does that even work? Well, there's no okay for a country to have nuclear weapons. You know, it's not okay. Even the Non-Proliferation Treaty, which recognizes that there were five countries at the time that had nuclear weapons, didn't say it was okay to keep them. Quite and the told, opposite. And told them they should reduce them. 
<laughs> yes, that the whole idea was that this was going to be a bargain, that all those countries that didn't have nuclear weapons promised never to get them, never. And those countries that did have them promised to get rid of them, promised to engage the words of the treaty, engage in good faith negotiations for the reduction and eventual elimination of nuclear weapons. That was the pledge. And so when the NPT nations, almost every country in the world is a member of this treaty now, when they come together in August, if this works out because of the pandemic, they will review the progress of the treaty. And the point is to say, okay, how are we doing there? Are the countries who pledge never to get it still not getting it? And are there any problems we have to deal with? And how about those countries that have them? How are their good faith negotiations going? And this is going to be a problem because there are no negotiations. Nobody is talking about nuclear weapons. In fact, the nine states that have them, just let's just go over them. United States and Russia have 93% of all the weapons in the world. They have most of them. And then you have Great Britain, France, China, India, Pakistan, Israel, and now North Korea with about... 30 or so nuclear weapons. That's it. Only those nine. Every five years, states that are party to the Non-Proliferation Treaty meet to review its implementation. Due to COVID-19, the review conference of the NPT was postponed until August 2021. You need to be able to use a force of argument that's hard to do if you're meeting virtually. So maybe by August it won't be virtual. Secondly, how to link in the TPNW, the prohibition of nuclear weapons, which um, has now come into effect because it's got enough countries that have ratified it, which is really because of total impatience with the nuclear countries. Mary just referred to the TPNW, which is the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, also known as the Nuclear Weapons Ban Treaty. The TPNW is the first legally binding international agreement to comprehensively prohibit nuclear weapons. The treaty entered into force in January 2021. I mean, there is a good civil society movement behind that. We shouldn't underestimate it. But I'd be interested, Joe, in your view of how that will play out in August under a Biden administration as well. Two things on that. One, I support that treaty. I think that is the kind of treaty you need. Oh, I do too. In fact, it, it, it goes back to the early days of the United Nations. The very first UN resolution was a resolution to ban nuclear weapons. The US introduced it, Harry Truman. We formed a commission to study this, and there was serious consideration. It didn't work because of the emerging Cold War tensions, but that was the view, and that view was correct, that the only safety with nuclear weapons is zero, is no nuclear weapons. You can't have a few that you're holding in reserve. You got to get rid of all of them. What are some of the key arguments of nations to keep their programs? And what other factors come into play? What are the arguments to and fro? Uh, having worked on the Armed Services Committee, every year we had the uh, generals come up and tell us why we have to have all the nuclear weapons we have, and we couldn't possibly cut any of them, and why they were essential to our uh, national security. And I got to tell you, I heard these arguments when the United States had 35,000 nuclear weapons, 30,000, 25,000. At every level, there was an insistence that you had to have this number of weapons, even though when you probed it, when you actually went way beyond what we're going to discuss today or what most people discuss, we said, well, well, why? What exactly would you do with these weapons? And when you start to look at the use of these arsenals, it's horrific. And you realize the use of any of these weapons, even Dozens of them, hundreds of them, would be national suicide. 
that we would be killing ourselves by using these weapons, regardless of what the other country did about them. Still, that logic holds. And the argument is ingrained now in the nuclear weapons states and in their elites that it's too risky to reduce. It's too risky to stand down. It's too risky to change doctrine. Mary recalls when the elders met in Washington in 2019. And we were pressing and arguing for the renewal of the New START Treaty. And it was looking as if we might run out of time because it had to be done before the end of February and the Trump administration weren't going to do it and there was the election, etc. Now, Biden very quickly has addressed that one. Do you think that will give an impetus? And can you explain more about the New START? Sure. We've had the experience of the Obama administration, which started off very strong on the elimination of nuclear weapons. Remember his, his famous speech in Prague in April of, of 2009, calling once again for the elimination. And we had major international figures like George Schultz and Henry Kissinger, Sam Nunn and Bill Perry arguing for the elimination of nuclear weapons. And we had this wave of optimism, which then faltered. We got only incremental advances and then it stopped. I think... uh New START is a great beginning. We need that treaty. That is a treaty that caps the arsenals in the United States and Russia to no more than 1,500 strategic deployed nuclear weapons. And it provides a series of inspections and verifications so that each side knows what the other is doing. This is extremely important in the nuclear age. You want to have predictability, certainty. You don't want to be caught by surprise. And having that predictability and certainty could lead you to do things like lower the alert time, to go to a no first use process. And so new start is important. It's necessary, but it's by no means sufficient. Can Biden restart actual arms reduction talks? Does Putin want to do that? What's the mechanism for bringing the Chinese in now? I mean, the Chinese only have 250 weapons. So they keep saying to the US and Russia, come back to us when you're serious, when you reduce down to our level, and then we'll talk. Well, there are still things you can talk about. Can you get that kind of mechanism going? The Biden administration has said they want to do that. We'll have to see if it stays in their already overloaded agenda. Here, Mary explains the minimization agenda that the elders are advocating for, which is intended to help reduce the immediate risk of nuclear war, while recognizing the political difficulty of complete elimination of nuclear weapons anytime soon. We recognized that basically we were in support of removal of all nuclear weapons. We welcomed the development of the TPNW and we support and are glad now that it has come into effect. But we noticed that the nuclear powers were not part of this and were not even comfortable with it. And in fact, tried to, in some way, stop this discussion. So we decided that we would try to build on the fact that we have a relationship with the P5 countries. We spend a lot of time talking to P5 leaders as much as we can on a range of issues. And we would advocate that the immediate medium-term objective would be to focus on the minimization of nuclear weapons, but with total nuclear disarmament as the ultimate end goal. Mary is referring to the United Nations Security Council's five permanent members, China, France, Russia, the United Kingdom, and the United States, collectively known as the P5. And that's why we developed a minimization agenda based around what we call the four Ds, the first is doctrine. 
that every nuclear state should make an unequivocal no first use declaration. Secondly, de-alerting. Almost all warheads should be taken off high alert status. It's incredible how many are on high alert. Three, deployment. Again, substantially reduce the one quarter of all nuclear warheads that are currently operationally deployed, which again is at a ridiculous number. And then decrease, meaning dramatically cut the number of nuclear weapons in existence. And we have talked to world leaders. We have talked to President Xi. We've talked to members of Congress. And we've talked to President Macron about this policy in an attempt to try to encourage more P5 responsibility among the nine countries that we know have the nuclear capability. Which countries are you most concerned about that might, you know, desire to develop nuclear weapons in the future? Well, we usually talk about nuclear capabilities. You know, is a country capable of developing it? Any country with an industrial base can do this. And as you, North Korea and Pakistan demonstrated, even if you don't have much of industrial base with enough will, you can do it. And then the countries with nuclear energy programs, power programs, civilian programs have then the technological base for doing it also. So you're mainly worried about these two areas of the world, the Middle East, where you have a cluster of countries that could, in a matter of 10 years or so, develop nuclear weapons, and Northeast Asia, where you have a cluster of companies that, in a matter of months, could develop nuclear weapons. And that would be South Korea, Japan, Taiwan, a few others. I would be particularly concerned about the Middle East on what happens with Iran. I think that's going to be very, very key, because as Iran hasn't yet, and we have the JCPOA, and we need to see that renewed rapidly by the Biden administration and work on that and from there. Mary is talking about the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, now known as the Iran Nuclear Deal. The agreement was signed in 2015 by Iran and several world powers, including the United States. The Iran deal placed significant restrictions on Iran's nuclear program in exchange for sanctions relief. However, in 2018, President Trump withdrew the United States from the deal. Can you give us a picture of what would happen if there was a nuclear fallout of some sorts? Well, there's basically two scenarios. And one is there's a single use, right? Like a terrorist use or a country destroys the capital of another country. And that is more horrific than one can imagine. First, of course, there's the blast. modern thermonuclear devices like taking a piece of the sun and bringing it down on Earth. And you get an immediate, massive explosion that vaporizes buildings, structures, over tens of square blocks. And the blast effect, as I say, could go on for hundreds of square kilometers. If it's a one megaton device, 1,300 square kilometers. So that's a that's London. That's Dublin. I mean, it's gone. It is rubble right there. But then, what happens is the firestorms, because everything gets set on fire. And now you have mega firestorms that sweep whatever's left of there, of, of that city, and spread throughout. And of course, even past the urban core, you have blast effects that are breaking windows, glass damage. Uh, then there's the radiation, which could kill almost every living being within that area. And then the winds carry it down and it, it kills. So we're looking at, in a modern city, hundreds of thousands, likely millions of casualties from the use of a modern thermonuclear bomb. And so if India and Pakistan get into a war, and 
it will almost certainly develop into a nuclear war leading to just such an exchange. They have about 300 between them. A hundred nuclear weapons scientists calculate used on the dense urban and mostly wooden cities of South Asia would put enough smoke and particulates into the atmosphere to cover the earth in a cloud for two or three years, dropping global temperatures by about two or three degrees. And before you think, well, that's our answer to climate change, you drop temperatures two to three degrees, you kill 40 to 50% of the food crops in the world, resulting in a famine that kills between one and two billion people, which of course results in complete destabilization of human civilization with that kind of panic, migrations, etc., that would occur. I think, again, these issues are so far out of sight, out of mind for so many people. So what are the humanitarian implications and the human rights implications of these uses that maybe we're just ignoring? Well, they're absolutely huge, as they were uh, when the bombs dropped 75 years ago last year. We should be, you know, reflecting on an historic moment that the world got over. (laughs) Instead, we're seeing just how serious it could be, even if it is a miscalculation or an accident or a hacking, it's beyond humanitarian because it obliterates. And at the same time, the very fact that we aren't seeing the threat in the way that we see now climate as a threat, we see COVID as an immediate threat that we're trying to come out of. And you know there is more and more awareness of an existential climate crisis. But this is the other existential threat with incredible implications for humanity and obviously for human rights. Yeah. You know, I don't think there's going to be an independent anti-nuclear movement like there was in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, or 90s with the nuclear freeze movement. I don't think we're going to see that. But what I do think we might see is the merging of these with the other movements for social justice. So this becomes part of it. And, And I believe that for two reasons. One is the morality of the issue. It is immoral to threaten the mass death of innocent men, women, and children in the name of security for a country. You should not do this. But the other reason is a little more mundane, but it might help us, which is monetary. As all our countries now struggle with the expenses of climate change, of pandemics, of redressing social inequities, where are they going to get the money? Well, a whole lot of it is tied up in nuclear weapons. The United States has a program to spend over $2 trillion over the next 25 years on nuclear weapons. For what? Why? And so as the government start to struggle with their budgets, I think there's going to be increased pressure to take some of that money and say, we don't need to modernize our ICBMs, our long-range ballistic missiles. We don't even need these anymore. Let's reduce the arsenal, reduce the cost, and use that money for schools, medicine, social programs, infrastructure. You know, the United States spends about $50 billion a year on its nuclear weapons directly. We spend $35 billion on the State Department. You know, what does that say about your priorities? And it's those kinds of issues that are going to be more thoroughly addressed because of the rise of the mass movements that put pressure on the politicians. With the existential threat of a nuclear war, it is normal for the average person to feel overwhelmed or maybe even apathetic. Here, Mary and Joe share what approaches we can take in recognizing the issues that we face. I think we've learned a bit from the climate world. I think we learned that scientists frightening everybody wasn't going to just do it, that what was needed 
was a justice approach, you know, an equality-based approach. And COVID has helped by linking all those inequalities. I think that it's easier now, especially for the younger generation, to literally see the connections between the various unacceptable situations of inequality. And we need to factor in more in realistic terms and well-argued terms, but not in frightening terms. In terms, again, I agree with Joe, let's not spend money stupidly on weapons that will destroy even more our world. Let's learn to protect our world. I mean, we're learning to protect nature and our world. It's the opposite of building up a nuclear arsenal. And I think, you know, we can have arguments that don't so overwhelm people that they just turn off. We're learning that in climate very much. And I think we can make sure that we don't make the mistake of so frightening people that they just don't want to know about this. We're in this sort of period now where we're seeing that there are things happening to our civilization that could result in the end of our civilizations, right? And so that is the first step. You have to recognize that the existing policies have failed before you can create the room for an alternative policy. And we're in that phase now. So while you, I know exactly what you're saying, this sense of disutility, the sense of, of what's the point? Why don't I just sit on my couch and watch Netflix all day? You know, well, this is the moment we're at right now. But in that moment is arising the alternatives. And some of it is represented by the youth of today. I mean, these are the people, the millennials of today are unbelievably dynamic. You know, you can quickly point to a number of heroes that are out there doing it. But it's also collectively, we see the sense from Pope Francis all the way down to climate activists. You know, they're moving and their politicians are moving with them. So we're in this, I think, an exciting new vibrancy of unified action to replace the failed policy of the past with new, more integrated policies, one that actually puts social justice, uh, social equities first. And when you do that, fossil fuels, nuclear weapons, you know, become obstacles to this, become problems that have to be overcome, not in any means solutions to your problems or providers of the security that modern civilizations need. While the nuclear threat feels so far and so distant, we hope that this episode shed light on the looming threat of inaction. We can and we must work towards achieving a world free of nuclear weapons. I want to thank Mary Robinson and Joe Serencioni for joining me on this episode of our new Finding Humanity podcast special series with the elders. about this episode, check out the links to resources on our show notes and on our website, findinghumanitypodcast.com. Before we go, I invite you to please subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you like our show, please rate it, leave us a review, and share it to encourage other people to tune in. For other opportunities to engage with us and for additional programming around this series, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at find underscore humanity and on Facebook at Finding Humanity Podcast. In our podcast, we cover pressing and at times controversial social and political issues. The views and opinions expressed are those of the interviewees and do not reflect the positions or opinions of our producers or any affiliated organizations. 
Finding Humanity is a joint production of the Humanity Lab Foundation and Human Group Media. This special series is made possible in part by our collaborating partner, The Elders. Our executive producer is Camille Lorente. Associate producer is Fernanda Oriegas. Assistant producer is Diana Galbraith. And our research and policy lead is Carolina Mendica. Mixing, editing, and music by Maverick Aquino. I'm your host, Hazami Bermada. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to seeing you on our next episode.